and welcome to the Science in the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Tamara Johnson. Last month, Science in the City was thrilled to host a discussion on some of the ways in which the process of science is vulnerable to some of the sadly pettier characteristics of human nature, which we're happy to bring you here via podcast. Science is done by people, and the profession is subject to harsh economic pressures and competition. What does this end up meaning for the ultimate progress of scientific knowledge? The discussion presents a lot to think about, so we'll jump right in. The first voice you'll hear belongs to Dr. Morton Myers, a radiologist and author of the book Prize Fight, The Race and Rivalry to Be the First. Next, you'll hear the panel's moderator and Scientific American Editor-in-Chief, Mariette de Cristina. After that are Dr. Harold Skip Garner, physicist, entrepreneur, and government advisor, and Ivan Oronsky, the executive editor for Reuters Health and co-founder of the Retraction Watch blog. Enjoy. I've had a long academic and clinical career in medicine, which has given me a chance to see the perspectives of, of research and scientific advancement through the roles of author, editor, clinical researcher. Um, and so I've had much contact with the issues of peer review and the correct and improper appropriation of credit. And what interests me as, as a radiologist particularly is the recognition of patterns. And, and going through different aspects regarding the history of science, uh, follow, following a certain thread of thought that seems to run through many of the uh, major advances, I realized that in the first case, serendipity played a major role in most of our, many, many rather, of our modern advances, but also the element of, of competition and ego-driven research and pride in one's accomplishments are major imperatives. We all think, I think, of scientific researchers as exalted by the joy of discovery, but that alone isn't sufficient to provide motivation. And many of them will admit, especially after they receive their awards, and I've interviewed many Nobel laureates and winners of other prestigious uh, prizes, they are refreshingly candid about the lust for, lust may be a strong word, it's a proper feeling that we all share for an accomplishment of recognition and reward. The rewards in an academic setting can be considerable, um, and so that involves the issues of priority and credit, because to be second in a race for an advancement is to be forgotten. It's interesting to me to sort of lift the veil on scientific discovery to trace the human elements that underlie many of these things. And that, I hope, will uh, not only ignite the scientific community, but raise public awareness as well. Terrific. So I think um, I love it that Mort set us up a bit about how scientists are so human. And the thing about being a human is we're subject to lots of things. So just to um, frame the conversation a little bit before we dive into some specifics, could we talk a little bit about some of the pressures that scientists are under today that, that encourage fraud or jealousy and so on? I can do that. Uh, universities uh, greatly expanded in the, the 90s, their research endeavors and, uh, and the number of faculty. Uh, and this was, of course, because there was an expanding uh, budget. But then there was a, a really an influx in development of new people. Now that has to be supported. And, uh, and so it's critical that, that every faculty member who wants to remain a faculty member or advance has to both uh, publish and get the money to do that. And so there is a great temptation as humans 
uh, to do to have all the standard human frailties uh, and kind of cross that kind of uh, line where uh, you would uh, do things to get published and do things to get money. Uh, not necessarily to, uh, to line your own pockets, but certainly to make certain that your lab is sustained and all the people that you that have grown to depend on you are sustained. So there's a, there's a different motivation there, but nonetheless, it can make you creep across the line. Yeah, I think budgets have been a little tight too lately. Ivan, you were talking to me about that. Yeah, I mean, well, what, one of the things that's interesting to sort of, I think, piggyback on something that um, Skip was just saying, so you had this doubling of the NIH budget yeah. uh, between, uh, what was it, 98 to 2003, I think that, those were the years. Um, and so that was really good for scientists, obviously. I mean, in, in, at, certainly at that time, you could hire more people, you could do more projects, you got more grants, all of that. Um, but when it didn't continue doubling, um, you had an awful lot of people who had been trained and who suddenly didn't have anywhere to go. So you have things like people spending endless amounts of time, and it really probably does to them feel endless, uh, you know, nine years in a postdoc program, um, getting what's sort of the, you know, the first kind of big NIH grant is called an R01 at the average age of, I think it's, was it 42 now, 41, 40, something like that. Um, and that, you know, may not feel very old to, to lots of us, but um, it's kind of old if you think about, you know, that being your sort of first big foray into, hey, look, I'm actually running my own lab and, and doing these things and hiring people. And so it's really had an effect where there's more and more pressure. Um, one of the things that's happened uh, is that, um, you know, my little corner of the universe, we've seen a lot more retractions. And it's always very, it's, it's troubling. It's not troubling. It's, it's difficult to draw lines and probably even dangerous to draw direct lines between things. But when you start to sort of see you know, in that preponderance of evidence sense, you know, what we're looking at. Retractions are on the rise. And so people say, well, aren't there just more papers being published? So you would expect to see more retractions. But actually, the, the number of retractions has grown about 10 times since 2001. Uh, the number of papers published has only grown 44%. So uh, in 2011, actually, that number went up to 400. So you, that obviously continued up. And it stayed about 400 in, um, in 2012. So it's, it's actually outstripping what you would expect. Um, and just to give you a sense of sort of some of the really colossal things that, that we've been seeing, speaking of pressures and reasons that people end up retracting and kind of the things that happen in science because of all the pressures, um, this is a, uh, a very, very clever guy named Hyung-in Moon. Um, Hyung-in uh, is a plant researcher. Uh, his research, you know, sort of actually might be legitimate. The problem was that in order to get his papers published, he sort of took advantage. He really uh, exploited a, a, it's not a loophole, it's a little bit of a chink in the armor of the peer review system. When the journals he was submitting to asked him for potential reviewers, like who's in your field that might know this stuff, and a lot of the top journals don't do that, but the kind of second, third tier will do that. Well, he said he gave them a bunch of names. And so he might have said, you know, um, Dr. Mort Myers, he, he knows this area very well, and here's his email address, which oddly wasn't, although nobody notices at the journal, it wasn't Mort Myers at stonybrook.edu, it was mortmyers at gmail.com, and look at who actually had control of that email address, but it was none other than Hyungin Moon. So he was actually doing his own peer reviews. He would send in, he would send in a very positive review where it would say, you should change this stuff because I think you need to oh, improve that, but definitely accept with revision. Um, and that happened. He actually got 24 of these through. What nailed him, what, what finally made the editors go, 
there's something off, I can't quite put my finger on it, is that he, he sent all the reviews back within 24 hours. And those of, you, those of you who work in science, work in journals, work in science at all, you can't even get anyone to agree to a review a paper in 24 hours, let alone actually respond and, re and do the review in 24 hours. So he, was, he just got a little too clever. But this was all because, and the science actually, we asked some people and it looks pretty good, uh, why he had to do this, I guess he just felt the pressure that he wanted to make sure these papers got published because actually in different countries, um, there actually, there's even more pressure. Um, you get these huge bonuses, not just a grant or, or keeping tenure or what have you, you get huge bonuses equal to half your salary in China, for example, for publishing in top journals. So this, I think, is just a taste of flavor of the sorts of things we see um, and that I think, again, it's very dangerous to sort of say, here's the pressure and therefore here's why there's more attractions, but it's kind of hard to really see how they're not related. I'd like to turn to Skip because he had a very interesting way, which you started to tell us about, and I'd like to, to you to talk more about how you detected scientists behaving badly in your work. Well, it, it originally started when I devised a code called ETBLAST, and you can go to etblast.org and use it. It was really a, a code where, unlike Google, where you put in a few terms, you can put in a paragraph or a page and then tell it to search against some database, and it will retrieve the most similar documents. And I did this so I could find references and I could start to understand biology and, and medicine better as a physicist. Uh, however, we decided to do an experiment one, uh, one summer, and that was, well, let's just take, uh, let's point this thing at Medline, which is the premier place where all the, the biomedical literature goes. And there was about 20 million or so abstracts in there for all the, the biomedical scientific research papers. So we pointed to that and we started randomly selecting abstracts out of Medline and then using those as the search. And of course it would find itself, but then a small amount of time would find other things that were just remarkably similar, almost exactly the same. And, uh, and so that kind of piqued our interest. And so, and then we ended up dividing up in two categories. One is uh, with the same authors and different authors, right? So if it found something that was highly similar and it had the same author, then that's, uh, that was really duplicate publication. And that happens very frequently. And, but there's also a lot where they're virtually identical, but the, the author sets are non-overlapping. And so <laughs> now uh, the, the interesting thing is that that uh, my attorneys, uh, the attorneys at UT Southwestern, uh, really advised me that I could not uh, call this plagiarism. Oh, sorry, I was not even well, supposed yeah, to use the P word, but. What are we meant uh, to? Uh, yeah, not so duplicated. I could just simply say they were highly similar with non overlapping authors. It's a long way of saying it. Uh, I like it. But, but nonetheless, uh, we, we decided to just do this exhaustively. I got supercomputer time and took 20 million articles and compared to 20 million other articles. And so it's 20 million squared calculations. And it, it ran for a little while, a few, a few months. And, and, and from that, I, I actually created a database called Deja Vu. And so, uh, and it's, you can get to that and, uh, from ET Blast, but Deja Vu really currently has about 82,000 pairs of papers that are too similar to be that by chance. And out of that 80,000, about 10% are in the category of non-overlapping authors. And so that was fine, that was, that was interesting. But then we decided to do another experiment. And that was, uh, we went and took the ones that were with the non-overlapping author sets that were most egregious, that where virtually all the figures and all the uh, references and all the text was identical. 
And, uh, and so we, taught, we picked uh, 200 out of the 8,000 to do this that were available. And we got both papers, we uh, compared them, and then we uh, yellow lined the second, off, you know, the second paper and decided to do a study. And we sent out a, a questionnaire to all the, the stakeholders. And so who are the stakeholders? Well, it's all the authors in the original paper, all the authors in the latter paper, and the editors of both journals. And, uh, and we said, we asked them qu questions like, were you aware of this? Uh, can you explain this? Uh, is there a copyright rule, you know, do you, et cetera? And we said, to help you in, in understanding this, we attached the two PDFs, right? Uh, and so it was, uh, it was a, a very interesting uh, period of time. I, uh, we interesting got, also being a useful word. Yeah, yeah. and you know, it's we had some like... open-ended questions too, you know, like, the, can you explain this? And, the, uh, but nonetheless, we, uh, we got all these things back, and we ended up writing it up and, and putting it in science, along with all the, the stories. But some of the things that were very interesting that came out of this was that 95% of the authors of the original paper were unaware that they'd been ripped off. Hmm. So it's very hard to keep up even with the, the literature in your own area, where you're the expert. And so, uh, so that was an interesting thing. And then uh, the people who were the rippees, uh, <laughs> You know, there was about a third that said, uh, well, uh, uh, we, we don't think this is wrong. And, and that was it. And another third said, uh, I'm sorry, and I apologize. They apologized to us, but I, I think that <laughs> the people they needed to apologize is, is a lot of people, the original authors, the editors, and the reviewers, everybody who spent their time doing these things. And, and then another third said, I didn't know I was an author or, uh, you know, or, or, you know, a variety of excuses. Like, uh, the latest thing we did was yeah. that we turned yeah. the same technology uh, to, to not the kinds of this kind of thing, plagiarism, which can get you in trouble as a faculty member or something like this, but to genuine fraud. And so um, a, last year what we did is we went on the web and we went to uh, several of the agencies that fund scientific research in, in America, Department of Energy, Department of Defense, NIH, NSF, and the Coleman Foundation, because I occasionally volunteer for them, and I know their grant policy really well. And so, um, so we downloaded all the grants that had ever been funded, and there's about 900,000 of them, and we did the same story. We compared all the grant summaries of the funded things, and, uh, and then did some calculations, and we ended up publishing this in Nature a couple months ago, where we basically identified over the course of, since 1985 to now, that that there were some double dipping where people would have a grant in, from the Department of Defense and then they'd get another grant from the NIH on the same thing. Well, just so you're, you don't panic or anything like this, it only added up to about $5.1 billion. <laughs> okay, so your taxpayers, uh, you your know. Your tax dollars at work. At yeah. work. And so uh, we estimated that in biomedicine alone, the double dipping, the second half of the dip, is about two or $300 million a year. Now, why is that important? Because I'm one of these people who applies for the R01 grant, okay? Uh, take the average size of the R01 grant, and that's about 660 new grants a year that are not awarded because other people are getting their, their grants awarded twice. So I think there's some innovative science that is gonna be missed because of that. Where is that going to lead us? I'm hoping uh, from the things that have been set up that likely the government is gonna take the, the kind of software and things that we've developed and put it into their processes so as to intercept this before it ever happens again. Mm -hmm. and, um, and we'll gladly help them with that, you know, <laughs> so.
uh, we'll see what happens. But I, I think if we can save the government a few hundred million to a billion a year and, and deploy it in other areas of science that are in need, I think it's going to be a, it'll, it'll be great. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it, it, I think it's actually a perfect segue to, <laughs> it's actually a perfect segue, Ivan, to the community response and, and noticing when there have been improper uh, things in papers. And, and I'd like you to speak more. You hinted a little bit about Retraction Watch, but what are some of the trends you're seeing? What has happened in the past, and this is you know two and a half years now, is that a lot of people are paying attention. We now have, um, and I pointed out there are about 400 retractions a year. Um, we now have uh, twice as many uh, tips sitting in my Evernote. Uh, we can't get to all of them, and we know they would all pay off. Um, we wanted to basically shine the light on retractions, partly because, quite frankly, they were, they're almost always good stories. Um, the kinds of things you're hearing uh, from all of us, uh, well, I didn't know who this was, and then you snare sort of some very famous people, and um, we get that sort of thing a lot. Uh, some, some are well-known scientists, some are not well-known scientists. We actually also wanted to shine the light on the practice of journals and how well they were actually writing these retraction notices. And if you look at a lot of these notices, you would think that science would be interested and the journals would be interested in saying, here's exactly why this was retracted. But as you can see from the sort of tensions that you're hearing about, people don't like to admit they've done anything wrong. I certainly don't. Um, I take it as a point of pride to do that. But it's not a pleasant process. And so we wanted to also shine the light on this practice and also how people were actually doing the right thing. You know, famous, famous, famous to us because I like the story a lot, but, you know, someone who realized after doing some, a paper and then trying to replicate it, basically moving on to the next you know, sort of experiment in the process, realized that his lab tech had ordered the wrong mice. Uh, very easy to do, if any of you have ever ordered mice from Jackson Labs. Uh, you sort of, there are all these symbols and it's CB6L slash minus plus this, that, and the other. She'd ordered the wrong mice. They realized this. And rather than try and hide it, which quite frankly is what a lot of people have done and will continue to do probably, he said, look, we have to retract this paper. Pretty prominent paper, actually crushing to him, and he, and he felt awful about it. And I could tell that when I spoke to him. But we wanted to highlight that. Um, and, you know, there was another, in a physics lab, uh, no mice died, but someone had mislabeled a tube of, of, I think it was palladium that they thought was rhodium, or maybe rhodium that they thought was palladium. Um, well, that's a problem when you're trying to work on one of those chemicals, you know, one of those elements. And so we wanted to just kind of tell these stories. And as journalists, that's what we do. But along the way, we have come up against all sorts of interesting things. In the last month, we've been uh, threatened with two lawsuits. They're really quite lame and silly and, and will not go anywhere. Um, but scientists, this, this is the thing that sort of bugs us um, and, and that we really think science needs to think about. Scientists don't like, and, and, even, and it's not just the individual scientists who obviously don't like us telling stories about them that are out there in public, by the way. It's not as though, I mean, we're finding we get documents, we get all sorts of things, and we get leaked things. Um, science writ large often has a real problem with the fact that we are reporting on these things. And this sort of self, we are, science is self-correcting, maybe. The scientific literature is not self-correcting as, as much as it would like you to think it is. They don't like to self-correct because it doesn't really, journals, it doesn't help them to have to print their attraction. It does in the long run, and Adam and I are firm believers that it's just as Richard Nixon learned to go back to politics. Uh, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up, right? Um, we all screw up. 
And one of the things that scientists have apparently become less willing to do is admit that they've screwed up. Now, there are reasons for that. We've talked about funding pressure. Um, politically, uh, again, you can use, it's a double-edged sword. You can use data like Skip has collected sort of to actually make things work better, which is what we're trying to do at Retraction Watch, or you can use it to just you know, bang away at the budget and cut the budget. Um, we all know there's realities, and I think we have to be cognizant of them. But we've just seen a lot of sort of um, interesting things happen. Um, duplication, and in large part, it's because of Skip's work uh, in de with Deja Vu and with, the, and with ET Blast. Um, duplication is, res is responsible for a larger and larger percentage of their attractions. Um, but in, to get back and to finish here, just uh, in terms of why retractions happen, uh, we basically used to think that misconduct was less than half of retractions. It was, or it was the reason for less than half of the retractions. It turns out that two-thirds of retractions are actually due to misconduct. Uh, and of the ones that we know the reason, three-quarters are. So it's much more common than a lot of people like to admit, um, which I think speaks to just this sort of lack of transparency, which is really, again, as journalists, what Adam and I are trying to deal with. But that's, that's the thing. Those are the things we care about. But, you know, Ivan, this says that we've kind of lost track of, of the real purpose behind scientific publishing, which is to distribute uh, the information so it can be validated and other people can build upon it. Instead, it's now part of your credentials that allow you to win the next grant yep. and things like this. And, you know, we, we looked at, you know, retractions as a consequence of our finding these plagiarized papers, as you know. And, uh, and I'm sure a few of them have landed in your blog. I know, I know several of them have, actually. And, and so the thing that is really disappointing is that when you get these obscure notices like this, they don't end up propagating back up to Medline and the other places that index all these papers. And so people continue to use retracted papers for years. And, you know, and, and so that's one of the things that we make, we make note of. And it's particularly bad because Medline is, is the place where all biomedical researchers go and their, their, their research is published there. They search there to find other papers. And when you, when you put in a query into Medline, uh, it, uh, what it does, it returns them in reverse you know, time order. And so, of course, someone who's plagiarized a paper, that's going to be up at the top. And that's the one you end up finding first, and that's the one you end up referencing first. Disproportionately large number get, uh, get done. And so I'm, I think that something has to be put in place where there needs to be a kind of a unification of, of what a retraction is, how it's stated, you know, very formalized, and it propagates back up so that we as scientists don't uh, use retracted papers to make clinical judgments or research judgments, other things like that. Well, it's interesting just to give sort of a data point on that. Uh, and this study was repeated, um, it was replicated, which is something else that science is not doing as much as it should. Um, in 1999 and in, in 2011, John Budd, who's out at uh, Mizzou, uh, and some colleagues looked at what actually happens to retracted papers. And so consistently in the batch that they looked at, a pretty big batch, um, the papers were being, re being cited uh, more than 90% of the time as if they hadn't been retracted. Now, there are reasons to retract, there are reasons to cite a retracted paper, like this didn't work, basically, or say that in scientific yeah. ease, but this didn't work, and here you go. Um, but these were being cited in support of an idea that actually turns out that the foundation is sort of not what you thought it was. That's troubling uh, scientifically, um, funding-wise, and and... That's not a good thing. Yeah.
And I'd like to know your sense of what the incidence of, of uh, scientific misconduct is among the plethora of scientific articles that are published each year. But I think most retractions are based on uh, the eventual uncovering of uh, manipulated data. And I think we have to ask ourselves, what fosters this or what allows this to be uh, peer-reviewed, accepted, published, and so forth, and how long it takes to even make for the movement toward retraction. Uh, peer review, and, and like any dysfunction, these things point out the flaws in any system. And uh, peer review is irreplaceable, but it has flaws. It doesn't expose a manipulated paper. And Nature, in fact, has written an editorial to that effect. Uh, it can't authenticate the truthfulness of, uh, of, a, of an accepted paper. Uh, it's not surprising that it continues to be cited in subsequent publications by others because the usual form of any retraction is sort of on the last page of a journal and does not catch any, any major eye. People who, who commit misconduct often use ghost authors even authors in their own department or in their own school who may not even be know, known that their, pay, that their uh, name is used among the authorship, but it's used for credibility when it is presented for publication, just as the uh, principal investigator to take the other extreme or the chairman of a department is, tags on his name at the end, as, which is still the current usage in Europe and Asia, not to the same degree here, but it certainly exists in this country as well. But Anybody who sets his mind to manipulate data can do it in such a way that it escapes the notice of a peer reviewer. And I suspect that this is the majority of cases that eventually catch attention, often by the whistleblower of a graduate student uh, who was involved in that. There are, hundred, there are scores of examples of this nature that... Um, uh, uh, there's, there, there's one notorious example, uh, a PhD who was employed by Bell Labs as it was undergoing a change of ownership toward uh, Lucent Technologies, who published one paper every eight days on nanotechnology. <laughs> so he, he, he tried to establish that uh, a molecule could be used as a uh, source of energy and transmission. Uh, and what this guy did is extremely clever, would try to understand where this particular field is going, where it is heading, what we could expect to be perhaps the next incremental step along the advance of this theme. To anticipate that and to set up all the data sets that are necessary to establish that, incorporate that into a paper, put that into a rapidly, uh, a journal that known for rapid publication once it does accept it. This guy did this over and over and over on the average, one paper every eight days. Now, this reflects on peer review. It, it reflects on the administration of that laboratory. It reflects on the industry backing the laboratory. And uh, it reflects, of course, fundamentally on the integrity of scientific enterprise itself. But in his case, it was the confluence of circumstances uh, of the change of ownership of Bell Labs, of uh, 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 journals wanting to rush to publish this stuff because it was breaking news and so forth. Everybody was complicit in it, and the thresholds of safeguards were lowered. So if you want to take a, a quick hit on the, the yeah, incidence no, point or, or, or... Yeah, just sort of a couple data points. Yeah. Um, 
about half of their attractions uh, are actually due to some sort of uh, falsification or fabrication. Right. Um, so right. uh, that's true. There are about 400 attractions a year, as I mentioned, in about 1.4 million papers published. Right. Um, now, but you can't assume, in fact, you really shouldn't assume that the 400 is the right number. Um, there are about 116,000, I think, corrections over that 20-year period when you saw about 2,700 retractions, just to give you some sense of things. The problem that Adam and I have seen is that scientists somehow, or at least a small but vocal minority of them, uh, seem to think that, in fact, no, 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 peer review actually works just fine. Thank you very much. Leave us alone. Peer review has a lot of issues. I, I, that's a sort of, that's right. big scope. Right. Um, it's well designed to do certain things, not particularly well designed if you're hellbent. However, on committing fraud, I will say that one of the things that has come out of the last few years, particularly the Stoppel case, uh, particularly in psychology, is a lot of initiatives in nature, as you mentioned, I think you were referring to the same editorial, uh, had okay. just this, this past week, in fact. Um, you know, this sort of the idea that we need to be focused more on replication. Uh, how we pay for it, I think, is a big question. But uh, actually creating data, actually uh, depositing data, I should say, um, in places that people can find it replicated, at least look at it. Um, and that's, that's, I think, something that's come out of it that's a good thing. And I can put some, some numbers if you'd like. And uh, so uh, from, from our studies, we think it's about 1% or 2% uh, and of the papers have a problem. And, uh, and if you look at the fraud, it's about 1% or 2% of the budget uh, in, in this scientific uh, double dipping. And, uh, and there's others who've studied this fairly well. And uh, there's been surveys where scientists have been asked to self-report on various types of, you know, standard human frailties, uh, you know, uh, uh, plagiarism, duplicate publication, falsification of data, and things like this. And, uh, and the, the numbers, uh, the scientists re report, you know, about a percent and a half have plagiarized, uh, okay, and about 5% of duplicate have had duplicate publications. Uh, a bigger fraction have manipulated data. And then, you know, and then there's, of course, a, a question like, well, do you keep adequate records? And so I think 25% of scientists admit that they don't keep adequate records. And I have to admit that I think I try to, but I don't know if I've written down everything. And when it comes to writing a paper, you're trying to go like, well, I did this three months ago, and I, hopefully I wrote it down. But not everybody does that. You know what's interesting about those? So Finnell, uh, Danielle Finelli has done some really good work in terms of surveying scientists. And, right. Um, so it comes to what's interesting about uh, his findings is that, uh, and he published this, I think, in 2009 in, in one of the PLOS journals, uh, 2%, about 2%, if you look at all the surveys of scientists, basically acknowledge they've done something that would be considered misconduct, which can range from uh, plagiarism to out and out making up data. So that's about 2%, which is kind of a, it's not a big number, but it's not zero. Um, but what's really interesting is if you ask them how many uh, they've, how many of their colleagues they've seen, you know, how many of them have seen their colleagues do something that they would consider misconduct? Um, it's 72%. That's okay. really so interesting. The real number is probably somewhere, somewhere in between. Um, but it's probably bigger than two and probably less than seven. And, and if you had, I suspect 72. if you asked that 72%, what did you do about it? Did you report right. that to some authority? It would be 0%. Yeah, interesting. That's it for this Science in the City podcast. For more, visit scienceinthecity.org and please feel free to email us anytime at scienceinthecity at nyas.org. For more science news, you can also follow us on social media. We're Science in the City on Facebook and Sci and the City on Twitter. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.